0: Welcome back to So Money, everyone. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Well, ahead of introducing today's wonderful guest, I have to quickly share with you the charity fundraiser and competition that's going to be going on all month here at So Money the entire month of November in tandem with a charity fundraiser forward slash competition going on with Joe Sol Sihai's podcast, Stacking Benjamins. And to tell us all about that, I've brought on Joe and Joe, here you go. What take the mic. You you invited me onto this little fundraiser of yours and I'm I'm excited but also a little nervous.
1: I'm way excited that we're doing this together. You know, uh, we can raise a bunch of money for charity. And I love this at the end of the year with Thanksgiving for people in the United States. We end the month of November with uh, Thanksgiving. And I thought, what a great way for our community to help another community that might need it. So we are going to be raising money for the Texas 4000, which is a 4000 mile bike ride that University of Texas students take to raise money for cancer research and and cancer-related causes. Uh, I know that they give a lot of money to MD Anderson Hospital, one of the premier uh, cancer treatment clinics in the United States, in Houston, Texas. And then they also give it to worthwhile uh, research or facilities around the nation. So we're going to be raising money at, at, at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Texas 4000. And it's cool because our organization, Farnoosh, has a lot in terms of where the money goes a lot in common with mm-hmm. who you're raising money yes. for. Talk about that for a minute.
0: Well, thank you. That was a nice transition. So uh, I have chosen, our team here at So Money has chosen the largest student-run philanthropy in the world, near and dear to my heart as well, because I was a part of this when I was in college. It's the Penn State IFC Panhellenic Dance Marathon. It's affectionately known as THON, and it's a year-long effort to raise money and awareness for the fight against pediatric cancers. It's raised over $125 million for the Four Diamonds Fund at Penn State Hershey Children's Hospital. And next year's THON 2016 is what we are fundraising for now. And that will be taking place February 19th through the 21st. It's a 46-hour dance marathon. I did it. And I survived. It was uh, life altering. Uh, but of course, it's for an amazing, tremendous and important cause. Thon.org forward slash so money. Thon.org forward slash so money is where you can go to contribute. I know it's high season for canning. And this is a way to join in on the fun. Anything you can do, know that it will be well spent. Over 95% of funds go to the families.
1: That's so great. And the writer that we're riding for, uh, who's riding in the Texas 4000, her name is Shelby Schreiber. Her father was a single dad raising her Farnoosh. And when she was in high school, he started feeling bad, went to the doctor. It turned out he had terminal cancer and he passed away when she was just in high school. Mm -hmm. So here she is without a dad. And now she decided she's going to ride this 4,000 mile bike ride in honor of him. And they spend no money on the bike ride. Uh, All the food along the way, all the housing along the way is donated. So I love these organizations, but... Stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Texas four zero 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 and and I hope together we can raise a lot of money.
0: I think we will. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Today's guest is a best-selling author of four books, a writer for Forbes, a sought-after speaker, and host of a nationally syndicated call-in radio show on Lifestyle Talk Radio. Samantha Edis is frequently featured on top news and lifestyle outlets for her career and parenting advice, regularly appearing on Access Hollywood, The Today Show, Fox & Friends, among many others. Samantha is eager to help women reach their potential by creating a work-life balance. She's worked with thousands of high-profile celebrities CEOs and professionals As mentioned previously She's the author of four books And her latest book The Pie Life Will be published next year Lots of takeaways from our time With Samantha or Sam Including the faulty math Many women make When deciding their career path After having children buying a home in New York and then selling it before actually moving in. What happened? It goes down as her biggest financial fail. And a red flag that the guy you're with probably doesn't value your ambitions. Interesting. Here is Samantha Edis. Samantha Eddis, welcome to So Money. Great to reconnect with you after all these years, sitting next to you at a book signing in Massachusetts. Glad to finally connect with you, at least voice to voice. How's it going? Yes, I
2: remember you so well. And I was I was thrilled to meet you then and thrilled to be reconnected now. Samantha,
0: I'm so impressed with the career that you have designed and built for yourself. I, I in some ways I relate to you, but also I very much admire you and uh, feel inspired by all the work that you're doing, the variety of work that you're doing, you know, from your author work to writing for Forbes, these wonderful profiles of leading women. And you are a speaker, you have a radio show, you have a book coming out next year, you're all over television, you're also a mom. And so naturally, you are this work-life balance renegade and parenting yeah. expert, It started with going to Harvard, though. Was this always kind of the idea for you in the back of your head that you wanted to create this very diverse career track for yourself on top of being uh, a parent?
2: not at all. I mean, I always knew that I was someone who would be having, you know, a big career and wanted children. Um, So that was always part of my plan. But in terms of what I was doing, when I graduated from business school, I was um, the only entrepreneur in my class at the time. It was 2001. And it was a little bit post, you know, the internet bubble bursting and everyone was a little bit fearful. And I started a firm for personality-driven brands. So it was a personal branding firm. And that was well ahead of its time because no one knew what a personal brand was. Whereas now I feel like everyone can say I'm a little bit like Starbucks and a little bit JetBlue or something. But then no one knew what it was. And so it really morphed more into a marketing firm. But what I realized along the way was that you couldn't talk to you know, really high achieving women without talking to them about what was going on in their personal lives, and how that was impacting their work. And what I found is that, you know, some of the most successful people around us weren't managing their lifestyles for success, and that was impacting their careers. And so over the last five years, I focused specifically on work life balance issues, because I feel like that's, that's sort of the pathway to helping all women reach their potential.
0: You sometimes hear about criticism out there about asking women about work life balance because it's not something that we typically ask men. For example, I think it was Matt Lauer who got into trouble when he asked, um, I forget who, but it was a woman who was, oh, it was the head of GM. It was um, the CEO of GM. Mary Tara, I think. Yes. He and he asked her, you know, something like, how do you do it all? Or how do you do this on top of being a mom? And he got a lot of backlash for that because would this have been a question that he would have asked the male CEO you know what, of a company? I, I, what I'm, do you think about that?
2: Yeah. I'm so glad you're bringing this up because
0: I actually, I think I take the contrarian
2: viewpoint, which is that I wish he would ask men and women. I don't think it's wrong that he asked a woman. I think it's wrong not to ask a man. And I think that, you know, I hear a lot of women and, and close friends of mine criticizing the fact that women are asked and men aren't. And I think that men should be asked too, because at the end of the day, if you want to have a thriving personal and professional life, which the most, you know, the happiest among us have both, then you really need to know what is the recipe because, you know that that's that's what our lives are made up of it's you know it's it, there's all these different pieces of our lives and so wanting to understand how a high achieving person manages those pieces is completely normal and something that that helps you in terms of your
0: own life absolutely it's not just a woman's issue it's everybody's issue and exactly. in some ways men need to be more at the forefront of this conversation because as we know when men get involved things start to happen That's absolutely true. And I think that any company,
2: for example, that has only a maternity leave policy and not a paternity leave policy is completely missing the boat because what you're doing is you're starting a father out 500 hours behind a mother, and then you can't achieve parity in the workforce or at home. And so it's so important that we start thinking about these things as both, you know, for men and women. And the reason I focus on women is because I think that a lot of women don't realize that they never have to make a choice between work and a personal life. There are so many ways to have both. And it's just about figuring out what that way is for you.
0: Can we go back to something you said earlier, which is that in 2001, you were the only one at your class at Harvard that was interested in pursuing entrepreneurship. And it's funny because we think of entrepreneurship, I mean, it's been around for, well, since the beginning of uh, time. <laughs> you know, we, Inventing things, being at the helm of something that you create is nothing new, but it is a modern, sort of a modern new normal. um, The fact that even at the number one business school in the country, just you know, uh, well, 20 years ago, less than 20 years ago, this was not something that was common, that everyone was more aspiring to go work for maybe the Goldman Sachs of the world.
2: Yeah, I remember at the time Bain, you know, the consulting firm, that was the hot job. Everyone wanted to work at Bain. (laughs) Um, but I think that that's, that's a number of factors go into that. But in typically, at least among my peers, you know, it definitely attracts a playing it safe kind of mentality. Um, the school. And I think that's changed so much in the last 15 years. And now entrepreneurship is a very big part of the program. I think it was just a, you know, a little bit of a unique time and that's changed a lot since then. But, I also think that entrepreneurship ends up being something that a lot of people fall into after being laid off or, you know, or fired or whatever it is, like they, they they just end up or, you know, taking years off and then wanting to go back to work. And I like to see it as a wonderful path for people to
0: choose proactively. In your work, helping women, particularly with work-life balance, how does money factor in? What recurring issues do you find yourself mentoring women in when it comes to personal finance as they're striving for this work-life balance?
2: One of the biggest um, heartbreaking things for, for me to see is what I call the faulty math that a lot of women are doing. So what will happen is a woman will be pregnant and She'll sit with her spouse and typically it's a man and they'll sit down and look at what she's earning and then look at what he's earning. And typically she's a lower earning spouse and they'll say, gosh, you know, I only earn $50,000 a year. And so if if we hire a nanny or, you know, put our child in daycare, it's pretty much the same cost. And so after taxes, so it, it probably makes no sense for me to work, I'll just take on that role for the next few years, and then I'll go back. Well, this sounds okay in theory, but the math is all wrong because what happens is that what we've seen from Sylvia and Hewitt's work is that if you take off just one year, if a woman takes off one year, she loses 18% of her future earnings forever. If a woman takes off two years, she loses more than 35% of her future earnings forever. And those are the numbers that women need to be thinking about. So what you're really comparing is if you're thinking you're going to take five years off until your child's in kindergarten to be full-time at home, then what you need to be comparing is that five years of daycare or nanny or whatever it is that you're going to use – versus your entire future earnings, because more than 50% of women who want to get back to their careers can't get employment in those careers after just a few years off.
0: I agree completely. And so two things come to mind. One is that, and I write about this also in my own book, When She Makes More, this idea that, and this isn't just me talking, there are a lot of women I've, I've interviewed who are further along in their careers, have had kids saying, I wish I had been more focused on my career when my kids were first born and and young. Because think about when you're having kids, a lot of times it's when you're in your late 20s, 30s, and you're very much in that kind of acclimation mode in your career. And um, there's a lot of potential, a lot of growth potential, and that gets stymied very difficult to kind of get back on that climb. And there was a Harvard study, and maybe, and I'm sure you know this, that the headline was, Children Don't Ruin Women's Careers, Husbands Do.
2: <laughs> yes. I, I really was. I was so happy to see that, actually, because I think just in my experience working with thousands of women, um, I, I would say that the number one barrier to a woman reaching her potential is being married or coupled with a partner who doesn't believe her career is as important as his.
0: Yes. Yes. That there's parity in valuing each other's careers, regardless of who makes more or less. Absolutely agree. So yes, faulty math is definitely um, something that I I fight against and uh, try to encourage women and men to really see it not just as this simple equation, but really look at your long-term goals and where your careers could take you given some investment today in time and, and money and resources. So Samantha, what is your financial philosophy now that you've you know, had all this experience and as a mother, as a wife, as a businesswoman, what's your financial philosophy, money mantra in a couple of sentences?
2: Well, that's such a, that's such a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked this question. Um, certainly I grew up with parents that lived above their means. Um, and that was really stressful. I mean, even as a child, I remember being very aware of that. Um, and, you know, they would spend a lot of money on vacations, but then be stressed about monthly bills. And I think, um, that that gave me sort of the, the motivation to always have a cushion and always be saving money, not you know living um, above our means or or ever being in debt because debt terrifies me um, and so I would say, but on the other side of that, what I also sort of was brought up with this idea that you should enjoy what you have and not just you know stuff everything under the mattress for a rainy day that might never come. Um so I really do believe in also enjoying life and spending money on things that are are important to you and that will make you enjoy your life. So I would say I'm a little bit in the middle, you know, I'm I'm a saver but I also believe in, you know, not not being overly cautious.
0: Well, fast forward to my one of my questions that's usually comes up later in the conversation but kind of is a nice transition because you just mentioned kind of growing up with a little bit of fear and insecurity sometimes, just the way that money was handled in your household. What's a money memory that kind of captures that, that to this day you remember it very well, vividly? Well,
2: you know, and I don't know how my parents will feel about me sharing this,
0: (laughs) but- (laughs) Don't worry, only a million and a half so people listen to this (laughs) Um, podcast.
2: No, I mean, you know, one thing is that for a very long time, my parents would pay for us to go on vacation with them over winter break. And that lasted well into adulthood. And then abruptly, one year, and I think it was right before I met my husband, they kind of ran out of money to do that. Um And that was just no longer an option. And ever since they've never been able to really go on vacation with us anymore, um, as a, as a, you know, my brothers and his wife, and that was their fantasy was that that would kind of last forever. And I think that that still makes me really sad for them and for, you know, and just for this vision they had. Um, and it's motivated me to want to somehow afford that for my kids that if I can afford for all of us, to take a family vacation well into adulthood, there's something amazing about that, that if you can make that happen for your kids, um, it's obviously a big fantasy, but it's something that I realize what the benefits are because no matter what our issues were with our parents or whatever it was, you know, whatever tensions existed, they kind of all fell away on those vacations. And it was kind of always brought us back to center and to spending time together. So that's one thing. Hmm. We talk about failure on this show, not to but get all. I'm actually going to mention another thing. Oh, Sorry. yeah, go ahead. So I grew up in New York City, and I grew up in a very um, affluent part of New York City. But I was always very aware that at my private school, we were the kind of the poorer one of the poorer families at the school. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, I know that well and good because <laughs> growing up in the 80s, I don't know how it was changed how it changed over the decades, but. Lunchtime was when you got to really learn about the economies represented at school because there were the kids who brought their lunches and their beautiful lunch bags. There were the kids who had the tickets that got them a hot meal for free. They sat together. So terrible, right? Like what a horrible way to introduce. Yeah, oh my gosh. I bet that still goes on. It does. And I and I didn't know what was really happening with the kids who got the tickets for lunch. I I was like, how can I get a free lunch? I thought it was awesome, you know. But then I realized as like later in the years, as I got to be older, like, oh, they were on welfare. Which isn't a good thing. So uh, I I did in in a way I I sort of experienced that. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and I don't want to diminish the fact. I mean, that
2: you know, obviously that certainly wasn't the case. I was at a private school in New York City, so it was just and we were going on vacations. It was just more of being so aware that there were we were in a different sort of. There were people in a different stratosphere and that was most of the school. And then there were people like us in the school. And so it was just kind of being aware of that from a very young age. But as I mentioned, um, I never felt, you know, this endless desire for money. I was always focused on passion and felt like money comes afterwards. So that was one of the gifts in terms of money mm-hmm. that my family gave me.
0: I do think it's hard to raise kids in New York While you were a kid and also today, I think children have a, parents, it's, it's a, it's a bigger challenge, I think, to really educate them about what are the value of things and what being wealthy means, because certainly you go to school and your parents might be making seven figures. And you're living in a shoebox <laughs> versus right. – and then yeah. you go to a friend's house and their dad or mother runs a hedge fund and they have a terrace and three floors and um, I've heard it from parents where their kids come home and they're like, why can't we have um, a trampoline in our house? Like, well, so we, can't, I we can hardly good, fit a dog in here.
2: Like, how would I, we get? I think I have a good answer for that one? So whenever I get anything like that, and it's not always about money, it could be about something, you know, why do they get to stay up later than we do or whatever it is. And I always like to say that life is not an a la carte menu. So if you had those rules, those would also be your parents and those would be your siblings. And so
0: you don't get to pick and choose. It's a package deal. So in it's our a package, package deal.
2: <laughs> I like that.
0: Uh, well, what would you say is your biggest financial failure, Samantha? What happened? Tell me everything. And then what did you learn?
2: Well, when my husband and I were living in New York City, we moved to Los Angeles four years ago. Um, we're in a very different financial situation today than we were when we first had my um, my three kids in New York City. When, we, when my son was born, he was our third child. And we were living in a 1,400-square-foot apartment in New York, and there were five of us. And my husband and I each had our own careers, and we had a babysitter coming in and out. It was just – it was chaos. And in the colder months, there was literally – we were climbing the walls. I mean, there was nowhere for us to go. Um, And and I kind of felt like we had done this to ourselves a little bit because when we first got married – Um, we bought an apartment. I had this idea in my head that I'd have fertility issues, which didn't come to fruition. Thank goodness. But I don't know why I decided I was going to have them. And so I thought it would take us five years to have our first child. It took one month. And then we'd already bought this apartment that was literally 600 square feet. Only in New York City is that like a really exciting thing. (laughs) We were thrilled with our 600 square foot apartment, our first apartment that we bought. Um, And there was no way we could have a baby in it. And so we had to turn it over. I mean, we literally had to sell it before we moved in at at a loss. And, you know, that hit us really hard. And it made it so that when we had five kids, we were in a 1400 square foot apartment with no option of, you know, trading up anytime soon. And so I think that that probably was our biggest failure, hopefully to date and hopefully forever. <laughs> but that, that that
0: immediately comes to mind. Yeah. I mean you can live in a six hundred square foot apartment with a kid with a baby. You can put the baby in a, you know, in a bassinet next to your it. bed. That's Babies true. don't need actually a lot of room. That's a big myth, right? The parents they get It's
2: true. They it expect is true. and then
0: they think, Oh my gosh, I gotta buy the house.
2: It's so true. I I think that you adapt to whatever situation you have. And so, you know, you get very used to the size of
0: your things, no matter what size they are. How is it like living in Los Angeles compared to New York City financially?
2: Well, people go out to eat far less in Los Angeles, Um, at least, you know, married people with kids. So if you're in a family situation, you might be going out on Saturday nights. But when we first moved here, that was a big surprise to us because in New York City, there's a little bit of a blending between professional and personal lives. And most people are out three or four nights a week, you know, regardless of, of their situation. Um, and then also like we were doing takeout five nights a week if we weren't going out. So I think that the biggest change was this idea that, you know, even though you're in a big city like Los Angeles, you almost have a suburban mentality in terms of going out to eat and spending money on takeout. You know, you suddenly have to re-
0: learn how to cook pretty fast. Right. And then the trade off of course, is <laughs> transportation, driving, gas. Right. I mean, people think, oh, my gosh, it must be
2: so much cheaper to live in L.A., but that's true. You do need you need cars and they break down, you know, especially I, if someone single just contacted me and was like, what do you think? Should I move to L.A.? And I was like, you know, you might love it here. I just want to mention you also it's not going to be that just because your rent's cheaper doesn't mean that everything else is going to be cheaper because, you know, you have to buy a car and you have to, you know, public transportation here right now. It's, it's improving, but it's pretty bad. So there are trade offs." you know, with everything. And it's certainly not um, in an expensive city, but it's, it is a lifestyle change. So there are a lot of ways to live leaner in Los Angeles um, because there's less pressure to go out all the time. And it's much more of a like, oh, come by my house kind of culture. I like that. I
0: am yeah. I love hosting. Why did you move to LA sidebar? What was the impetus for that?
2: You know what? Actually, it's a funny story, but we were um, just itching for a change. New York City is a hard place, as I said. If if you are living in such a small, um, if you're living in such a small apartment, and you're not, you don't have the financial means to really not worry about money, it can be difficult to live there. My husband is a serial entrepreneur, and so he. Builds companies, grows them, and then moves on. So he was finally at a place where he was, you know, going to start his next company within the next five years so we could pick our next spot. Um, And I, you know, I travel a lot for work. um, So I can pretty much live in most places as long as there's an airport. Um, So what happened was one night we really knew we wanted to move and we put on Twitter, what's the most idyllic town in America? And I got 11 responses. And one of them was the Pacific Palisades in California, which is where we ended up. That night, we'd never been here. We looked it up on Wikipedia. And my husband was like, I think that's our spot. And literally, that's how we moved here. No friends, no family, just moved.
0: It used to be like Money Magazine or USA Today that would be like, here are the hottest places to live. You crowdsource it from Twitter. I know.
2: Isn't that hilarious? Like, I love Twitter and this is just another example of why.
0: (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. So what would you say is your so money moment? A time in your life where you experienced financial greatness at any point. What happened and, and uh, why would it, why is that necessarily the best moment?
2: Financial greatness. I think you know what it was? I can really remember it. It was my husband and I were on vacation and we were going to visit his family in New England. And we were driving. We pulled over to stop at this bead store I love. And we were in the parking lot and we got a call from my agent. And I had just received um, a deal from Random House for my next three books. So it was a package. Um, And it was kind of in the heyday of books. And we bought our next apartment in New York City based on that advance for that three-book deal. Wow, That was very, very exciting.
0: And you have a book coming out next year. Tell us about
2: it. It's called The Pie Life. Yeah, it's The Pie Life, A Woman's Recipe for Love, Success, and Satisfaction. And it's coming out next September. I'm super excited about it. And it's basically all about how to have a thriving professional
0: and personal life at the same time. How important is this message for millennial women, younger women, who we find that in large metropolitan areas, young women actually out-earn young men on average, uh, or at least the wage gap is in some cities much narrower than it is nationally. Oh, uh, That's uh, incredible. I mean, yeah. I, I, it, it kind of mirrors, you know, college graduate rates. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's so, kind of what the fuel is for that. But of course, as they age and they move on and they have uh, – they get married and have children, that wage gap expands. So how important is this message for younger women? I mean, there's the lean-in book, but I think a lot of millennial women didn't really relate to that uh, as much as maybe uh, Cheryl Sandberg had hoped, at least the women that I have spoken to and have been in front of audiences of young women. Um, Do you, how, but, you know, back to the question, how how important is it for them to get this message so they don't get dissuaded? See, I love talking to millennial
2: women because I feel like... I can get to them before they've made some of the bad choices (laughs) that other women have made because they're just launching their lives. And so if I can get to them and say, it is critical to marry someone who supports your career and your dreams, and that is the number one key to reaching your potential. When I can reach millennial women, I'm thrilled because I think that millennial women and men care a lot about work-life trade-offs and balance and making sure that they have both. Um, And so I think this message is critical. I think one of the reasons I did my book is because I'm so passionately against the three models that we've been given in terms of work-life balance. One is this image of the scale, which is ridiculous because for a scale to be in balance, both things have to be equal. And no one who has a thriving career spends equal time at work and at home. You just can't do it. Um, and then we talk about having it all. And there really isn't anyone we can point to that has it all. Barack Obama, Angelina Jolie, nobody has it all. And then we talk about juggling. And really, it's impossible to successfully breastfeed while handling a conference call and, you know, typing on your computer. It just, it doesn't work. And so what ends up happening is women keep beating themselves up based on these failed yardsticks that we're aiming for. So what I like to say is your life is a pie and you have all different slices. And one slice might be your career and one slice is your health. One slice is your friends, your partner or your quest to find one. One slice is your hobbies. One slice is your community. And one slice is your children if you choose to have them. And so instead of beating yourself up based on how much time each slice is taking, you make goals for each slice. And that is how you evaluate the success of your life. And so you know, Farnoosh, if you're lying in bed at night and you're stressing out, you know, like most of us do, we'll lie in bed at night and we'll go, oh my gosh, I just had, you know, a fight with my boyfriend and my mom is sick and, you know, my boss hates me. And then you start getting into this sort of rotisserie of all these problems. You end up not thinking about what's going right. But if you force yourself to look at all the slices, you're forced to look at the slices that are going well too. And it immediately calms you down and makes you
0: sort of, have a more holistic approach to your entire work-life balance. Does your book does your book also talk about how to find the right partner? Because it's easy to say find a partner who values your career, but if you, if you look at studies, like men are often sometimes I don't want to say often, but sometimes uh, what's the word mm, sort of intimidated by women's ambitions if they are if they're with a partner, a female partner who is really goal oriented, uh, striving for the CEO position, entrepreneurial and maybe he's not that they kind of see that as a threat. If she makes more, definitely it can weigh on the relationship. So how do you find someone who respects that, values that and most importantly will nurture that for you? Well, I know you've done so much
2: work in this area and I, I love what you're doing. I, I feel like you know I, I see let me just anecdotally share with you at school. My husband will take, you know, our child to school or, you know, be working on his lunchbox and moms will come over to him and be like, oh, Sam is so lucky. And I always want to say, you know, there was no luck involved. (laughs) This is, there's two things involved. One is picking a person who has high potential as a partner. Okay. But number two is having high expectations. And I truly believe that if I, you know, my husband comes from a family which is very traditional model. He is a stay at home mom, a dad who expected dinner on the table every night at whatever time. And that is not necessarily natural to him to have a completely egalitarian relationship. But it was always my expectation that I would have one. And I always say to him, like, I think if you'd married someone who was more traditional, your marriage would be more traditional. But I think part of it is just having high expectations in the very beginning. I would never have ended up with someone who wouldn't be a full partner with the kids and at home. Um, and that was always very important to me. And so I think there's two pieces of it. One is finding someone who really believes in, you know, in you and your career and gets excited. You know, when you're dating, is this person excited when you tell them about something great that happened at work? If not, forget about them. <laughs> um but, you know, secondly, it's once you're in the relationship, have him come to all the doctor's appointments when you're pregnant.
0: Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> it starts. <laughs> Can I just brag for a second about my husband? Yes. So, when I was pregnant, uh, Tim came to every single, almost annoyingly. Like, I was like, okay, you don't really have to come to this test because it's just a glucose screening. Like, really. He's <laughs> like, no, I really want to be there. And at one point, I think it was the 20 week point we were uh, getting that one big important screening and the nurse looked at my husband and said, "Uh, you, you know, you're very, it's very rare to see a father not only be at the, the appointments, this is in New York city, but to also not be on his cell phone during the appointments.
2: Oh, it's so interesting. And I was like,
0: I felt so sad for those women, you know, yes, who, who exactly. like, you're, he's he's there. He's with you, but he's so not there. You know, um, so just see, Arnush, I
2: think you're an example, and and I am too, of the fact that like there. I mean,
0: in terms of intimidating
2: women, we're both. You know, we we sort of. I ooze. can be scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say. I was saying it nicely. We both ooze self confidence and ambition, right? And so I I bet you never had a problem meeting people that respected that. And so I think too many women let ourselves off the hook by saying, Oh gosh, I'll be intimidated. I have to downplay my credentials. And I say quite the opposite. You know, when women call my radio show and talk about the fact that they're having so much trouble with online dating, I say to them, your profile's not intimidating enough. You have to write a profile that says, education and confidence are super important to me because that'll weed out the insecure guys. Yes. And I think a lot of it is just looking for someone who is highly educated and super, you know, smart and curious about the world and ambitious and also ambitious for you because you propel each other. And so I, I don't think finding someone like that is as hard as we make it out to be. I'll tell you one other story about the expectations. I have a friend who to me is in a very traditional marriage in Los Angeles, a new friend, and she has two kids and she actually just launched her own business, but a few, two years ago, she was over with her family and her husband, and she always complains that he doesn't really help. And her husband was walking out the door and to go pick up his mother. And he said, I'm going to go to the supermarket. I have time to go to the supermarket on the way home. What should I pick up for the house for the week? And she goes, oh, forget it. It's too complicated. You won't know what to get. And at that moment, she basically tied his hands. He can't be helpful at home. Mm -hmm. And I think too often I see women doing that. Oh, he won't know how to change a diaper. Well, you know what? In the first day you're home, find an excuse to leave him alone with the
0: baby. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The good news is men want to help, ladies. Okay. So you need to just let them. And it's not going to be perfect like you do it, but but, uh, but you have to have faith in them. And It's, you're, it's not like, I think this is the problem too. We come home and we feel like we're still at work and your husband is your associate or your colleague, but not your partner and someone that you're romantic with that being in a relationship is sometimes not politically correct. You don't follow rules. You just have to do the dance that works best for the two of you. And it, you know, it's different in every relationship, but it's important to find that that dance. And um, anyway, we could talk about this for a long time. I just want to also say that femininity and masculinity play big roles in the laws of attraction. Um, And so remember that. And I think to that
2: point, you know, it's so important to nurture your marriage along the way. Mm -hmm. And I believe that right from the beginning, you should be having weekly date nights. And, you know, if financially that's an issue, then do babysitting swaps with a neighbor or a friend. Or get a local college student to spend, you know, two or three hours um, a week at night, you know, staying over so you can
0: have have dinner. But I think that those kinds of things are so important. Yeah, agree. All right. One of the last few questions I ask is about financial habits, Samantha. What's a number, the number one habit that you practice? It could be daily, but it could also be less frequent, but definitely helps you with your money.
2: Huh. Yeah. Um, I think, first of all, you're making me so much more aware of my financial habits. <laughs> Good, thank you, Farnoosh. Um I think that for me, it's a lot of it is um, I'm a big routine person, right? So as soon as I go out of that routine and realize I'm spending money on something outside of it, I'm just very cognizant of when the last time I did that was. So you know, if I go into a store and see two sweaters I like. I am the kind of person that when I go shopping, I want to do it all at once. Like I don't have a lot of time and extra time in my life. So I almost see shopping as part of my job. Like I have a lot of, you know, appearances and speaking things and TV appearances. And so when I go, I'll just like go. But I'm very aware of, okay, I, the last time I went shopping was two months ago or whatever it might be, four months ago. So I have to be very aware of that. And so I have a very specific budget for myself. In terms of that, and I'm also pretty religious about keeping my business expenses and my personal expenses separate, just to make it easier, you know, come
0: tax season. <laughs> sure, definitely. Okay, ready for some so money fill in the blanks? I guess so. <laughs> okay, you're gonna do great. Don't overthink it. If I won a, mil- if I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say a hundred million bucks, the first thing I would do is. Um, I would I would start a foundation most likely for domestic violence or prison reform. Wow. I'm gonna ask you later about charity, but first, one of the th- one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is um
2: having my nanny come a couple of hours early to do all the supermarket
0: shopping. Yes. And you have how many kids now? Four? Three. Three, okay. Yeah. Uh, When I splurge, I like to spend on blank and it's worth every penny.
2: My biggest splurge right now in my life is going out to dinner at Nobu Malibu, which is
0: my favorite restaurant on earth. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You must see so many celebrities there.
2: Every time.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Just for that, I would be like a fly on the wall.
2: And I also justify it because in New York City, we went out to dinner a lot more. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah. One thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is? How to save. How to save. Yeah. When I donate, I like to give to blank because? Um, I give to a lot of women's charities and
2: um, I give a lot to Baby Buggy, which is my number one charity, which gives
0: um, baby necessities to the, the most impoverished families. Yes. Jessica Seinfeld's charity, right? Yes. Yes. Great. And I'm Samantha Edis. I'm so money because because I help women reach their potential. Thank you so much, Samantha Edis. You're such a wonderful guest. I think this time just flew by, and I would That's love to why. have you back when the pie book, <laughs> um, when the pie life comes out. So I'd love to. Please do us the honor. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bernouche. Thanks so much. If you'd like to learn more about Samantha Eddis, her website is samanthaeddis.com. She's also on Twitter with the same name, at Samantha Edis. All of this and more, including the transcript and comments at somoneypodcast.com. And while you're there, click on Ask Farnoosh, and you can send me your question for the Friday episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Hope your day is so money.